Hello, Rock Church. Good to be with you. How are we? How are we doing? Good. Good to be with you, man. My name's Caleb. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you. After I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's so good to be together. Last week, a bunch of us weren't here at the Rock. Uh, about almost 200 of us from the Rock went to Alamosa, Colorado. Went to Faith Camp. If you're at Faith Camp, give a hoot. Woo! Yeah, it was awesome. It was so good. Uh, we we. We're together with our M28 Alliance, our group of churches, almost 700, or it was 765 people. I got an email today. That's how many people were there. It was a great time. Consider going next time. Whenever that happens, we'll let you know, but it's going to be uh, a good time next time it comes up. I hope you all had a great week. I just wanted to share a highlight of my week. Uh, this has nothing to do with the message, <laughs> but, uh, and it's really dumb, but um, I, I saw somebody that I haven't seen in a while, and they, they, since my hair was growing out, and the first thing they said was, are you trying to look like you're in Boy Meets World? And it just, it made my week. If you know anything about my childhood, my upbringing, TJIF, right? Man, Boy Meets World is great. So again, nothing to do with the message, but that gives you a, a look into my week and uh, gave me a smile. So we are in Romans. This is season two. We're talking about God's salvation Finally, right? After talking about God's sentence, we're on to his salvation, the good news. It's awesome. This is the second week of season two. If you missed last week, one of our deacons, Paul Stoddard, did an excellent job filling in for us as we were gone, and he went through the end of Romans 3, and today we're going to be in the beginning of Romans 4. This is part 13 overall of our Romans study. I've entitled this message, Accredited Righteousness. No, we're not talking about accredited schools and education. Uh, we're talking about the credit of righteousness that God gives towards believers, towards their eternal account, if you will. Let me ask you a quick pop quiz. Does anybody know what the major theme of Romans is? It's in uh, Romans 1.17. I'll give you that hint. Anybody? Shout it out if you know it. The righteous shall live by faith. Yes, Paul said it last week. The righteous shall live by faith. That is the premise of Paul's entire letter to the Romans, is he wants to show that the righteous live by faith. They are saved by faith. He wants his readers to understand that righteousness, justification, eternal life, and right standing with God and before God comes by faith. This theme of living by faith will continue this week as he began it at the end of Romans chapter 3, talking about God's salvation. He is making the case for righteousness to come by faith alone for believers. And in Romans 4, he will continue to unpack that, looking at some Old Testament scriptures and examples. To remind you, this letter was written to both Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews. And Paul started by making claims, many claims, that religion will not save you. Following the law of Moses will not save you. Right living, your heritage, ritual customs like circumcision will not save you. And there would have been a number of hearers up to this point hearing this letter. It was read aloud in the church who probably still weren't convinced about this faith alone idea. They probably thought they needed some works sprinkled in there. So Romans 4, Paul is going to go back to the very first Jew... Abraham, and he's going to go back to the mightiest king of Israel in their history, David. And he's going to use these two men as examples of why justification and righteousness comes by faith. He wants to show that these great heroes of the Jewish culture and the Jewish heritage are examples of living by faith. True faith, saving faith, faith that can bring justification before God. 
So before we pray, let me ask you another question. What is faith? It's important for us to be on the same, right, same uh, point of what we're talking about, what faith exactly is. A few definitions you can find on the internet. Faith, I like this first one, is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Second, belief and trust in loyalty to God. Firm belief in something for which there is no proof. And finally, strong belief in the traditional doctrines of a religion. There's a number of different definitions there. I think it's important that we understand what faith is, right? People can put faith in a lot of things, a lot of institutions that can let them down, right? A person, a religious leader, a culture, a government, right? Good luck if you put your faith in the government, right? Whatever that may be. It's, we have all of these things that we put our faith in and they let us down. Even our loved ones can let us down when we put our trust in them. The faith that Paul wrote about in Romans was more than just belief in something or a belief in ideas or a doctrine or a religion, right? It wasn't just that what he's talking about by the righteous shall live by faith. The faith that Paul is pointing to in Abraham and David that we will see in Romans 4 is them placing their faith, their trust in God, not just in a thing, not just in a set of ideas, but in God. This is a faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Even before Jesus Christ showed up on the scene, this is complete trust in who God is and what he says he will do. Abraham Lincoln said it this way, faith is not believing that God can, but that God will. There's a distinction there. It's not just an intellectual knowledge of God's might or ability. It is an experiential trust of who God is, believing in his promises, his faithfulness. We will see that in Paul's example from David and Abraham today. So let's pray, and we'll dive into Romans 4. Jesus, thank you for today. Thanks for a chance to worship you and to sing to you. Thanks for so many people being here that want to know you more. God, I pray that you would answer that prayer, that desire of their heart to reveal yourself to us. Would you give us more of yourself? Would you increase our faith, our trust in you? Would you show us what it looks like to walk by faith, to live rightly before you, and what saving faith is? Lord, if anybody here who doesn't know you, I pray you would reveal to them what saving faith looks like today. Pray that in your name. Amen. All right, so Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is showing here that Abraham has no work of the flesh, no religious act, no claim for his right standing before God. It wasn't circumcision. It wasn't obedience even. God, he, uh, Paul is saying that it was none of those things of the flesh that made Abraham right. It was his faith. To do that, Paul quotes here in the quotations, Genesis 15. We're going to look at that in just a moment. Before we get to Genesis 15, I think it's important to be reminded of God's covenant with Abraham, the first promise he made to Abraham in Genesis 12. You've probably heard this. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, before God changed his name, it was Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great, genera- a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God's promise to Abram. I will bless you 
And then through you and your offspring, I will bless the entire world. Now let's go to Genesis 15, which Paul quoted in Romans 4. After Abram has packed up and left his homeland, he is still waiting for God to fulfill that promise, right? To have offspring, to make him into a great nation. And this is what Genesis 15 says. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household uh, will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Now you have to remember, Abram at this time is a very old man, over 75 years old. And Sarai, his wife, was a very old woman. They are long past the age of having kids. And God still has the audacity to promise, I will give you your own offspring. Continuing in Genesis 15, God brought Abram outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram or Abraham, I might say one or the other, so just follow along. Uh, before any act of religion or work of the flesh, before any of that, Abram believed that God would do the very thing he promised he would do. No matter how impossible it seemed, right? It was impossible. It was physically impossible. And Abram still believed that God could do that and God counted him as right. Because of that faith, because of believing that promise, he credited him as righteous. Abram, Abraham's faith saved him. And that's our first point today, is that salvation comes by faith. Do you see that? Abraham simply believed that's all it took, and God counted it towards him as righteous. And the NAS on the screen here, it says that God credited Abraham's faith as righteousness. Righteousness is right standing before God. Right? God is righteous. It is who he is, and he does righteousness. When God sees this kind of faith, he says, you are now righteous in my sight. Your faith has given you right standing before me. It isn't works or ritual or circumcision that justifies us before God. In God's first covenant with Abram, he promised that through his offspring, the whole world would be blessed. Ultimately, that blessing was the promised Messiah. Jesus, the son of God, the son of Abraham, who was to come, and Abraham believed that promise. The Holy Spirit knew what he was doing in Genesis 15 here, putting this line, right? He knew that's, that's what we would come to in Romans. When Paul would write Romans, he would point to that and say, see, before any works of religion, that is how Abraham became righteous. It was faith. It wasn't heritage. It wasn't circumcision. It wasn't being a Jew, it was faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Charles Spurgeon said this, the vital question is not how were we born or what rites and ceremonies have, we practiced, have been practiced upon us, but do we believe in God? Have we true faith in God's word? Are we trusting our souls to the keeping of God's son? That's a great quote. This is a great question for us to ask ourselves. Ask yourself this. Do we believe what God says? 
Do we approach God's word, his promises, even when they seem impossible and outlandish and ridiculous? Do we say, God, you said it. I will believe it. I will put my trust in what you say, not in my own understanding, not in the way I see it should, how it should work out. I will put my trust in you. Do we approach this book with faith and humility to hear from him? Do we believe what God did for us on the cross? Do we truly believe that? More than just an intellectual idea, do we put our trust in that work? Do we believe who God says we are now, right? As we are a new creation, what he has made us to be. Do we believe God's promise to us? Do we have the faith of Abraham? Or do we say, nah, I'll believe it when I see it. God, give me some proof. Lead me down the path, and then I'll, and then I'll put my trust in you. Then I'll, I'll believe it. I'll believe it when I see it. Abraham believed God when it seemed impossible, when there was no proof, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Continuing on, verse four. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We see here Paul is making the point that if you do good works, you deserve to be paid for that. You deserve a wage, right? That isn't a gift. It's not a grace. It's not undeserved mercy. It's a wage. You've earned it. You deserve it. If you work at a job, you get a paycheck. And the Bible says that our good works, the things that we try to drum up in us, the best that we can do are like filthy rags. They aren't even good enough to bring to God. They're worthless. They're filthy that's what we earn, even in our good works. But if you have faith in Jesus, who has already done all of the work you need on the cross for your justification, you will be counted as righteous, just like Abraham. Now, Paul is going to introduce another Old Testament hero to make his point. He is going to point to King David, another titan of the Jewish faith of Israel. The listeners, if they hadn't already sat up in their chair, they would have sat up now. Wait, you, wait, you, you, you think Abraham was justified by faith? Oh, wait, now you're going to David even? King David, the best king we've had. You think he was justified by faith? They would have sat up in their chair and listened. And he is going to say that we are made righteous by faith even when we have done the complete opposite of good works. When all we have done is sin against God. When that's all we have done, he's going to use David's sin as an example. Romans 4, verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David said the ultimate blessing is to have his sins forgiven. Not because of good works, again, not because he was a good king, not because he tried to obey God or he built the temple. It was the ultimate blessing was having his sins forgiven apart from his works. Blessedness in the Old Testament, in the Jewish culture, the ultimate joy, happiness, wholeness, and fulfillment. They understood, the Jews understood that blessedness always was in proximity of the one that had in, in the presence of God. It was their proximity to the presence of God. How, the closer to God that they were, the more blessed that they were. The blessing of God is him fulfilling our needs, him being near, him comforting our hurts, him being our good God. And when we are in our sin, we are far from him. 
right? God himself is our greatest blessing, a relationship and a closeness to him. And for us to have that, we must be in right standing with him. We need our sins forgiven. We need the righteousness of God. Paul in Romans 4 is quoting from Psalm 32 here. A very well-known psalm to the Israelites. David wrote that song, talking about the grace and the forgiveness and mercy that he found after his great sins of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. Talk about a bold thing here for Paul. To present here to the church in Rome after spending three chapters nearly talking about how horrible of sinners they are, that all people are before judgment, to say, oh yeah, and now just by faith you can be reconciled with God. And that's what David was, this, this sin of David that was so awful, and he points to it as a great example. He said it in the verses we studied last week, right? Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And David, for all of his good merits as a good king, had some bad days of sin, if you've read his story. But David, in Psalm 32, is exclaiming that God, in his mercy, because of God's great forgiveness, looked past David's sin, forgave him, paid for his sin on the cross. And when David looked to God, when, uh, when David looked to God in faith, that's all it took, was turning to him, having, putting his faith, his trust in him, not in his good works. We see that here in verse 5 of Psalm 32. David said, Then I acknowledged my sin to you. and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. He repented, and he put his trust in the Lord. Apart from works. By faith, David turned to God's grace Again, placing his faith in the promised Messiah that would come from his own lineage. There was nowhere else for David to turn. He was corrupt and guilty before God, just like you and I are, right? We know that. We've talked, we talked about that. God's sentence. There's nowhere to turn. But by faith, we can turn to God. We must turn to God and his grace. We must place our faith in his grace. That's our second point, is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We see in Romans 4, Paul is saying people are not justified by their good works. It's apart from their works. It's despite their sin. Our good works fail us. They will never measure up or make up for this giant crater of a debt that we, our sin has made. We could never climb out of the pit that our sin has created, and let alone, even if we got out of that pit, we could never climb the ladder up to where God is in heaven with our good works. We needed a Savior that would reach down to us. He would clear our debt and deposit to us his very own righteousness. No works could do that. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is the gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Grace is a gift that we could never earn. It's a gift Abraham couldn't earn. It's a gift that David certainly could not earn in his great sin. And that way we know we have no way to boast about it. Isn't that good in some ways? Just so relieving that it's not up to us. How can you boast about something that was given to you when you didn't deserve it at all? Have you experienced that type of grace, not just from the Lord, but from somebody else when you didn't deserve it? 
Man, and it's just, what a relief, what a burden off your shoulders. We are given accredited righteousness. That word used is an actual financial term in Greek. It's like having a balance transferred from one account to another, a credit, an account that was quite negative, right? Our account was quite negative, and God credited us. Think of it like this. If you opened your bank app today on your phone and you saw your whole life savings is negative $50 billion, what would you do to get out of that mess, right? Your heart would, there would be nothing, like nowhere to turn. There's nowhere to go. You wouldn't even bother arguing, right, that you made $76. But I did good works. I made $76, right? Like, put it towards my account. It'll pay for it eventually, right? That does no good at all. That is our debt before God and our sin. We think we can do good works and pay off that debt, right? Like, we're just going to climb that ladder, tidy little works, $76 at a time. We're going to get there. $50 billion is such a, like, insane amount of money. You would never make that up, ever. We need a savior to come and pay our debt and say, I will take care of it. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. But you know, Jesus, when he saves us, we need to understand this, when he saves us, he doesn't come and just go, cool, I'll get your account back to zero, right? Like, I'll just clean the slate back to zero, you're good. I'll get you to zero again, because that wouldn't do any good. God is way up here, right? So even if we're down here in the pit, if he gets us halfway, that doesn't do much good. We, our goal is to be with God, right? We need his righteousness. Jesus, in his love, says, I'll pay the $50, or $50 billion debt, and then, oh, by the way, then I'll dump another $50 billion into your account. I will link our accounts together, and whatever is in my account, you will have access to. I will give you my righteousness. I will give you the credit that I earned that you have no part in, and I will say it is yours. Amen, right? Isn't that good? I will not just get you to zero. I will bring your balance way up here. I will pay the debt. I will give you my righteousness. And then from there, we can still do good works, right? We can add to that account. We can bring more glory to God. We can add to his fame and his glory. We can, $110 at a time. We can, like, this is for you, Jesus, but it doesn't save us. We need to understand that. We've had messages this idea of good works flowing out of our salvation, a fruit of our salvation. It is what shows that God, that our, our faith is real. It is what has saved us, that God works through us and we do good works, but it is not anything we can count on to save us, right? We'll have more talks like that in the future. I don't have time to get into all of that. Our good works bring glory to God, yes, but it does nothing towards our account ultimately, right? It's a drop in the bucket, it's like, here, God, this is for you. It's like my child bringing me a penny. Oh, thanks. Oh, I love you. Thanks for giving me your penny. Right? Paul says, this is the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from their works. We are not just made sinless. We are made righteous. Do you believe that? Do you, do you trust that? That God says, I have made you righteous. You are right with me. I will be near you and be your God. Maybe you don't quite believe that Jesus deposits his wealth into our account. Maybe you're still a little skeptical. Let's look at a few other verses. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, 
God cares about us for our sake. He, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus took on our sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God. Let that sink in. In him, we don't just have his righteousness, we become it. It is imputed on ours. It's a credit to our account. Another verse, Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall ex- exult in my God, for he has, a cl- he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Catch this. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. We are, have these filthy robes on us, covered in sin. They are red, soaked red. They're disgusting in dirt and muck. God cleans us up. Jesus cleans us up. And not only that, he says, I will robe you in my clothes. I will give you my righteousness, right? It's like taking this perfectly white cloth and wrapping us in it, right? We sing so many songs. Sin had left a crimson stain, and Jesus washed it white as snow. We are covered in the righteousness of Christ. R.C. Sproul said this. Understanding justification by faith alone is not hard. Anyone can grasp it intellectually, but to get it in the bloodstream is extremely difficult because the voices all around us are saying, no, that's too easy. You have to earn it. You have to deserve it. Man, we are lied to from our world, from the devil, our own doubts. No, you got to do something. You got to earn it. And we see from Abraham and from David, despite their sin, despite no proof of the promise, they put their faith in, in God and he gave them his righteousness. There's nothing David could do to deserve this grace. He deserved judgment, and we did too. By faith, he, he was counted as righteous. There is nothing you could do to deserve grace, Christian, and he forgave you, and he gives you his righteousness. Do we live like that's true? Think about that for a moment. When you leave here, do you live like that's true? Do, you, do we believe that he can do this and has, in fact, done it for us? Are we walking in the blessing, in the joy, in the happiness, in the full life that is the reality of being made right before God? Do we live that way? In our final four verses that we'll look at, Paul goes back to Abraham, showing that his righteousness came before circumcision. We talked about this a few weeks ago, Josh did. That was the great debate for the first century church, right? Did Gentiles who got saved, did they need to be circumcised? Did they need to become like a Jew physically? Again, Paul points, his point here in Genesis 15 doesn't say anything about circumcision making Abraham righteous. In fact, if we look at Genesis, God didn't tell Abraham to be circumcised until Genesis 17, which was almost 10 years later or more than 10 years later. So it wasn't circumcision that made him right. It was his faith. Let's read that in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. 
Circumcision was a seal, it was a sign, it was a symbol of what had already taken place in Abraham's account, in his heart, in his soul, accredited righteousness to his account. Josh, again, talked about this a few weeks ago, and he talked about different signs, different seals, customs that we have, right, of certain things that show. It's an outward appearance that shows an inward thing, right? A wedding ring shows you're married. If you take it off, it doesn't mean you're not married, right? Or we, we celebrate baptism. All that is is getting wet. It's an outward symbol showing that what God has already done in the hearts of believers, right? It's a proclamation that's saying, I am new, I am saved, and I want the world to know. That's baptism. That is a seal. It's an outward sign. And thankfully, we don't tell men anymore to get circumcised, right? After they get saved, all the guys, you take a deep breath, right? It's like, whew. And I'm sure all the Gentiles took a deep breath after this point, like, oh, man, that was going to be my day tomorrow. Uh, thank you, Paul. We encourage you to get baptized, to show the world that Je what Jesus has done in your heart. We, we encourage these outward signs, but it's not anything that saves you, right? It's not anything that you can trust in. Greater than that, now after Jesus ascended to heaven too, we have a greater seal, the ultimate seal, the greatest seal of all time and sign, which is the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We are sealed. It's an internal seal like circumcision of our heart. God's saying, you are mine, and I am with you. I'm right there with you. Ephesians 1 talks about this seal. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We have a seal greater than circumcision. It can never be taken away. It is the sign of our faith in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you today, have you placed your faith in Christ alone? If you have, you already have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. It is your sign of God's covenant promise to you. If you have not placed your faith, your trust, your complete trust in him, I encourage you to do that today. So our final verse is Paul now shows the purpose of God declaring Abram as righteous well before circumcision. Again, the Holy Spirit knew what he was doing. Man, you can trust him. The purpose was to make him, Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness could be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father, Abraham, had before he was circumcised. Abraham was declared just and justified and declared righteous by faith. Long before he was circumcised, it was a long time after that, even that the law of Moses came. Or, right, the law of Moses came to Israel. It was long before a temple sacrifice was ever given. Long before the death of Jesus, but Abraham believed in what God was going to do, just like we believe in what God has already done. It was by faith, faith in Him, faith in who God is and what He said He would do. It was about Him, not us. That's what faith is. It's trust about. His faithfulness, not our own. Turning from ourselves, trusting in Him, not ourselves. He is trustworthy and faithful. And so that's our final point today. Salvation is God declaring His faithfulness to His people. God is faithful even when we are not. He accepts anyone who would turn to Him in faith despite their works, despite their sin. 
Like we said earlier, it's not just believing that he can, it's believing that he will. It's that differentiation, believing he has already died and risen from the grave in our place, believing that he wants me to trust him. He wants me. He wants relationship with me, trusting that, believing that. It's placing our trust fully in our good father. Let me uh, share an example here. With my kids, I want them to trust me, right? I want them in many ways to put their faith in me. I'm imperfect, right? To believe not just what I say, but hopefully that I will do what I say. I want them to believe that. And I'm, I'm imperfect. I don't always measure up to that. I'm not God. But there's an element of wanting their trust, their faith. My kids like to climb trees. They're getting pretty adventurous, some of them. And sometimes they get themselves into some scary situations. And I remember one time in particular at a park, my son, my oldest, got pretty high, told him to come down, and he got to this branch that the, whatever route he came, he couldn't get down without jumping. And it was pretty high. And he was worried about hurting himself on the jump. So I said, Abel, I'll catch you. I'll catch you. Trust me. Jump. I'll catch you. If nothing else, I'll slow you down. <laughs> no, trust me, son. Have faith in me. Trust me. And he jumped, and I completely missed him. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. No, but I caught him. Right? Might not believe me next time after this, but I caught him. We, in the same way, right, we get ourselves into some messes. We're foolish. We don't listen to our father. Hey, don't go so high. Be careful. Come down the other way, right? Whatever it may be, we go out on some limbs. We take some chances and risks, and our sin gets us stuck in places we shouldn't be. And we know that we need to just jump to our Father. Why won't we just jump to our Father? Because we don't trust Him. We won't put our faith in Him. We won't believe in what He says. We won't believe who He has made us to be already. We think, my dad dropped me last time, right? My, my, heavenly, or my earthly father, he dropped me, right? And we, we say, well, that's what God's going to do. No, that's not who God is. How do I know he'll come through for me this time? Because he promises he will. It might not be the way you expect it, but he will always come through with his promises. That's why it's called faith. Sometimes there isn't proof, like Abraham didn't have proof. He believed in God's word. He placed his faith in him not the proof. Many times faith is just a letting go. It's a jumping. It's stopping the fighting, stopping the striving, right? Our working on our own to make ourselves feel better, to work on our own merit and our own effort. Many times it's just giving up in that. I love the first verse of in Christ alone. We sing it all the time. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground Firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace when fears are stilled and when striving cease. Do you ever get to that line and just go, oh, God, I, I can just stop striving. I can tr stop trying to do it on my own. I can stop trying to earn your approval. You've already done it. Help me to walk in that, to walk by faith. My comforter, my all in all. Here in the love of Christ I stand. So as we bring this to a close, thinking all week, I've been thinking all week about Abraham and his saving faith, thinking about David and his saving faith and his confession of sin. It's easy to think, oh man, I'm not like them, right? 
We can read these, read these heroes and think, oh, I'm nothing like them. But if we continue reading, we see they're just like us. I'm encouraged. You think, right? right? I, bet, I bet Abraham never had a doubt in his mind after this. After God said, you're righteous, I bet Abraham was like, never got into trouble again. If we continue reading in Genesis, the next chapter, he, him and his wife are like, God, you're taking too long, so we're going to have a kid with the, the servant woman, Right? But his faith had already made him righteous. It doesn't mean he didn't screw up. It didn't mean he doubted, right? If you know the story of David, I love David. I'm so much like him because I screw up all the time, right? David was a screw up. After this great sin and this great grace that he received and being counted as righteous and walking in this blessing, he screwed up all the time. He wasn't a great dad, right? He did a census that God clearly said, don't have that census, and God killed a bunch of people because of David's sin. David was a screw-up. But his, his faith had already made him righteous. So I'm encouraged, right? Take heart. If you know the Bible, if you know these stories, have faith that they still doubted. They still struggled. Don't leave this place thinking like, oh, man, I got to be perfect. Again, that's the whole point. Give up trying to be perfect. Walk in faith. And what God has already done None of this negated God's promise and declaration of righteousness. They continued to walk by faith. They continued to confess their sin when they realized their wrongdoing and put their faith back in God who can forgive. They knew their need of a savior and they trusted in God's faithfulness and his graciousness and patience. The righteous shall live by faith. Say that with me. The righteous shall live by faith. It's not a one-time faith. It's not, oh, I, I, I said a prayer, and I'm going to tuck that faith into the back of my junk drawer, right? So it's there when I need it. No, it's walking by faith. That is true saving faith. It's not just a one-time faith thing. It's walking by faith, placing your faith in Jesus. It is a daily walk through the struggle, through the sin, through the hard times, having patience, waiting when that prayer isn't answered. Right When the, the thing you want doesn't come, when the healing's not there, when you still lose people, when you still struggle, it's walking by faith. Salvation is God declaring his faithfulness to his people. He has credited it to our account, his righteousness. He's given to us. May we strive to continue walking by faith, placing our trust in him and his promises. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the book of Romans, the letter of Romans that we can hear from you, Holy Spirit, as you spoke through the Apostle Paul. Thank you for the examples of faith that we see in the Old Testament. Jesus, that those who look to you and imperfectly put their faith in you, and yet you said, I will make you mine. I thank you for that truth, Lord. Would you comfort us with that? Would you encourage with us, us with that? Would you embolden us with that, Lord, to go walk by faith this week? Again, if anyone doesn't know you, Lord, tonight, I pray you would put it on their heart so strongly that they would not leave this place without getting right with you, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being with us. We commit all this to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.